2: Hello and welcome to Fever Thirty Five, a podcast about the things we do to take care of
0: ourselves. I'm Dori Schaefer. I'm Kate Spencer, and we are not experts, but alas, we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Alas, alas was the wrong word. <laughs> it's like almost like <laughs> oh, sadly. <whoa>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We're just two friends. <sighs> um, how's it going? Well. It's go. I'm drinking a cup of coffee you at 11 sure o'clock are. in the morning. So that feels very wild. Really? Normally I've wrapped up the coffee by, oh, by I this see. time I of see. day, but I see. you know, I just am living on the edge today. I like it. Dory, yes. I need to shout out a product that I shouted out on our Instagram. Please. My Hot Tools Deep Waver. Yes. Your hair looked amazing. Thank you so much. I posted about it on our Instagram and people were asking about it. And I, just, I said I would talk about it on the podcast as well. It is a, pr- a tool I have had for at least two years. Yeah, okay, wait. Let's back up.
2: Because on our Instagram, you were like, uh, I use my wave tool. And I was like, what? Or was what like, wave tool? I see you
0: twice a week at least.
2: You have never mentioned a wave I tool. I didn't even know that you owned this. And you were like, oh yeah, I've had it
0: for a while. And I was like, <laughs> what? I still have secrets. Uh, apparently. What else are you h- holding back from I'm me? Definitely a flat iron you don't know about. <gasps> I... I got this on the recommendation of a friend, okay. but it was, I got it when my hair was short mm-hmm. and it did like, let's say a chin length bob okay. or a little bit longer. So like my hair. Yes. And I, it looked to me, it just looked like large crimps and it didn't, it wasn't creating the effect I was going, going for in my head, which was the beachy wave. Sure. Like everyone the, wants a beachy wave. Look, everyone does. And I have unsuccessfully tried to recreate Beachy Waves. I've watched YouTube tutorials. My lovely hairdresser has tried to teach me, hello, Chai, you're the best, but I can't figure it out. So recently I dug that deep waver up Mm -hmm. and now my hair is past my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I actually used it for Halloween because my children wanted me to dress as a rock and roller. Uh And I was like, this will help. (laughs) And then I liked the effect so much that I brought it with me to Canada. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep deep waving. It looked great. Well, that's really nice of you. Thank you. It it does still kind of look like a large crimp, but it works a bit better now that my hair is longer. Uh huh. I kind of want to try it. We can head into my bathroom when we're done recording this podcast. I'll show it to you. It's it's dusty because I've had it for two years in a drawer, but so it's a deep waver. It's by hot tools. As we've mentioned, I will, we will link to it. It'll be on our Amazon page. Um, I believe I got it at Ulta. Yeah, people really like the Hot Tools curling irons. Well, I think Hot Tools makes really good products at a reasonable price because there mm-hmm. was nothing more shocking to me than when I went to go like buy a flat iron and discovering that they can be like two to three hundred dollars. I thought it would be like, yeah. and you can't get a twenty dollar flat iron. But I think like everybody I knew at the time was using a Chi, and okay. it was like hundreds of dollars. That I just didn't. That's know. obscene. It is. So I think Hot Tools makes these products people really like, and the price point is kind of in the middle. Right, sure. And that can feel good. Yep. If you want to spend some money, but not your whole week's salary. Totally.
2: So besides the waves, besides Katrina and the waves, what else happened in Canada, Kate?
0: I had a full-on meltdown in shoppers, Uh which every Canadian... Was like we don't really care much about shopper. Like it is is t- it like
2: Walgreens? Yeah, it's
0: kind of like a a Targety Walgreens. Okay. Let me tell you. Also, how big is it? That's a great question. I would describe it as the same. It's it's like a large Walgreens. Okay, like the Walgreens at Sunset and Vine. That's is too specific for me oh. to know. Okay. It's just like a big Walgreens, but then they also ha- but like with a miniature Sephora attached to it, like a truly a Sephora, not a Sephora. But they oh. were selling like department store makeup products fascinating. and then they had this whole like pharmacy zone with French products and can, a Canadian project project a Canadian product called Marcel that I had never heard mm. of that I got very excited about I was alone you know I was stayed in a hotel room for two nights by myself in Toronto and I just started talking to our forever 35 Instagram I think I was lonely so I was just chatting it up and then I went to this shoppers per the recommendation of listeners yeah who live in Canada. And I was like beside myself because it was all the French pharmacy products of my dreams at, uh, you know, plus considering the way the American dollar translates in Canada, it was just too much for me. What
2: did you bring me back?
0: Oh, Dory, an Avene spray. Oh,
2: interesting. A tiny
0: Avene hmm, spray. Okay. Maybe a lip balm if you want it. Ooh. ooh. I ended up, There was a big dilemma. Should I buy full-size products and then check my bag? Oh, I see. But then I remembered that my home is filled with like overflowing products. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you got to keep it. You said, uh-uh. Yeah. I said, no. No. Which Toronto every- is
2: not in French speaking
0: Canada, but I'll allow it. Well, their signage is. Oh,
2: interesting. All through Canada,
0: they have everything. Air Canada, they said everything mm-hmm, in French. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got very comfortable with my my French. Okay, So I went to the shoppers. I bought products. I just want to say uh, Canadians are so nice. I loved being in Toronto. Um, I got to hang out with some great podcasters. You were there for a podcast uh, festival? Yes, which is part of Hot Docs. And I got to speak on a panel um, with Maria Blasucci, who's one of the founders of Irios, and um, Duana, who is one of the hosts, along with Lainey of Lainey Gossip of Show Your Work, which is a podcast I love. So it was really cool. And I, met, so I met really nice people. Again, Canadians, so lovely. Yes, a lovely people. Truly, your country <laughs> is like universal health care and french pharmacy products at shoppers i mean it's truly the dream and you know what they had so many people had great recommendations for other skincare stuff to do in toronto that i just didn't get around to but like i know consonant is a really great brand that i like that's based there we should probably go back i really think it would be really fun for skincare expedition yes like kind of like two explorers yes heading north um so that's what i was up to you know i love a mist You love a love an oil. I kind of have come to terms with the fact that like I just love collecting mists and spraying myself down. Yeah. And the other thing I've been up to, Dory, I will tell you is I've gotten very into early wake up. Mm -hmm. This has been a bit of a theme the last few weeks. I just feel like I've seen the light and I have never felt this way. it's dark. (laughs) You know, (laughs) touche. Just saying. It is dark, especially now with daylight savings in place. Well, no, daylight savings ended. Oh, excuse me. And whatever actually, happened,
2: but now it it actually gets light earlier
0: now. So then maybe I am onto something. And I've kind of been looking at the five what was it the five a.m. miracle book, which I'm not a huge fan of. The, what the guy is hypothesizing in there, but I do think waking up at five a.m. like starting your day with a little intention setting and whatever, a, some quiet time, hydration, exercise, and then like starting your work day. It's very appealing to me. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. Also, the 9 p.m. bedtime, that's also becoming very appealing. So,
2: Has that been working out?
0: A little bit. Good. I mean, my husband is like, what is going on? Because I'm at like 8.30. I'm like, off to bed. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) And he's like, what? (laughs) So, but I really, I love getting up early. And I never, I'm not, that's not how my body has ever felt. Yeah. But it's a, I really... I am really enjoying it. And then I did this, I made a whole Excel spreadsheet of my ideal every day, my ideal day mapped out Ooh, from like half hour to half hour. Cool. I almost sent it to you and then I was like, this is a lot. This is a well, lot. You know, our listeners are going to want to see it. Listeners, I will show it to you, but I need to make it into a template um, without all my info in it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I just have hours of poop sessions in there. <laughs> but I did, but I got the original template that I based mine off of, off of this um 5 a.m. morning guy. So I will link to this cool. person's blog because I don't want to take credit. This, this like personal um, development blogger, writer, podcaster. He, I don't know who he is, but I'm into his thoughts on waking up at this. 5 a.m. Yeah. You know? So. That's what I've been up to, Dory. Today at five thirty, I shot out of bed. Yeah. So what are you doing at five thirty? Well, today I looked at my phone, but that's okay. not what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay. In my ideal day, yes. you would. I would wake up at five. I would have some water. Okay. Before coffee. Okay. I would either do medit- like five minutes of meditation, maybe read like a poem. Okay. Like th- do something before like just getting on my phone. Mm-hmm. Especially because it is kind of like a very calm, peaceful, quiet, spiritually connected part of the day. Yeah. Um so doing some sort of practice in that regard. Then just kind of sitting down and setting up what my day is going to look like and then exercising. And for me, what I'm thinking about, like I don't need to go and do like boot camp, but like today I took the dog for an hour long walk, which was really nice or Going for a swim or just at some f-
2: at 6 a.m. This was done? at
0: 645. Okay. Just because I did a, you know, I did a vacation version of this. Today. Right, right, right. Sure. Um, so that's kind of, it would be kind of broken down like that eating breakfast early. Mm-hmm. Um, also setting some time aside to like do emails in an hour slot mm-hmm. rather than, although mm-hmm. in our profession, like the emails are going to be ongoing all day long. Yeah. But taking like an hour of my time to just focus on that. I like doing that. I don't I that's not how I've ever operated so I'm going to see if it's something that I can kind of transition into doing. Yeah. So I'll report back. Cool. You're making it sound very appealing. Well, past forever 35 guest Elizabeth Holmes just posted on her Instagram that she's also like become an early morning person and I sent her a little message and I was like, "Hello from another person who's trained themselves." Interesting. Yeah, so I would I want to ask her more about what how she's doing it because I mean, she's like a new baby and she's writing a book. And so it might be the only time she can get stuff done. And has two other kids. And other work. Yeah. And a whole, you know, empire of royal family coverage to manage. Yeah. So perhaps this is the secret, Dory, that I've been searching for in two years of this podcast. I mean, I'm down. We'll find out. Okay. Any other early risers? Hit me up. Well, that was a lot about me. I mean, I was into it. That was a very dedicated segment on me. It was. Tell me what has been going on in your life.
2: Well, Kate, (laughs) I'm just going to get comfortable here.
0: Dory leans back in the chair.
2: (laughs) Let me just settle in. Um, So I think I've mentioned previously that I am trying to kind of gradually wean Henry I've mentioned this on this podcast. Yes. Boob
0: freedom is on your horizon.
2: Boob liberation. Um, So I have successfully gone from breastfeeding once a day and pumping five times a day to breastfeeding once a day and pumping three times a day, which has been great. It's like, it's such a game changer. Hey. Um, So that's really good. And I think over the next few weeks I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go down to 2 and then I'm going to going to go down to 1 and then hopefully I I'm hoping by the end of the year I'll be able to be like completely done
0: end of 2019.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um I am trying to do this gradually because my boobs get so clogged and painful. Yeah. And so the it's been it's been good the last few days. I haven't had, I haven't really had clogs. I've, like I felt a little bit of clogging, but not anything major. So I, I think the gradual method is, is working
0: for me, which is great. And I feel like
2: I'm on the way to, to boob freedom. Oh,
0: I'm excited for you. Thank you. Do you have any emotions attached to stopping your breast milk relationship with your son? You know, a little bit.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm, you know the i i- I do enjoy breastfeeding much more now than I did before, but now he also has teeth, so now I'm back to using the nipple shields because he's like chomping on my nipple um oh boy, you know it's just like what oh are you gonna do yeah I know that's just what it is it is what it is um. And we've been having some nice early morning nursing sessions, mm. but he does he he does get distracted really easily and now he's kind of at a point where he'll like eat really well in one boob and then he's like, I'm done. So then I have like one empty boob and one like totally
0: full boob. <laughs> come on, I need you to yeah, empty this uh, other exactly. boob. I'm like,
2: do your job, baby. God. <laughs> Henry, come on. Um but no, I mean, I, I have been enjoying it and um, I will be sad when it's over because it is like our our special time. Yeah. Um, but I think I can also have our special time with like a bottle. Uh, totally. I can still sit in the same chair and like feed him in the morning with a bottle and it will be fine. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I, I am just really looking forward to getting like my body and my time back. Like as we were talking about waking up early and like exercising early, I was thinking, wow, yeah, it would be so nice to have that like hour and a half before Henry gets up to just like do my own thing. And then I was like, I can't, I don't think I can exercise with my like full boobs. Yeah, like waiting to be milked. You know? <laughs> yeah, so it's hard. It's like, I, I have to wait until I'm done with that to really like put that into action.
0: Well, I will be counting down for you. Well,
2: thank you so much. Um, Another weird thing that happened this week is I had to go through some old photos to find some to run with this article I was writing. And as I was going through these photos, I saw like, sometimes I'll like be in a dressing room and I'll take pictures of myself to see if I like, like the outfit. And I saw all these photos, like selfies. And I was like, oh, that was a cute outfit. And I was like, oh, I guess I didn't buy that. Oh, that was cute. I never bought that dress. And then I was thinking like, oh, right. I took all these photos, looked at them and was like, this doesn't look good. I'm not going to buy this dress or these pants or whatever. And now looking at these photos like two years later, I'm like, oh, I look cute. Yeah. And then I got sad.
0: That weird hindsight where you recognize the body dysmorphia you had at the time. Yeah. Yeah is I've had that too. It's, it's really sad. It's jarring. Yeah. It's really
2: jarring. So, you know, I've talked about how I think pregnancy helped me get over a little bit of my body dysmorphia. And I do feel like I'm in a better place with it now. But it is always like a reminder.
0: Well, and one thing I always think about when I have those moments where I look back at old photos and marvel at how great I was and then remember how much self-loathing was running through my yeah. brain is that now I'm like, like, I need to remember that now I look great. No, exactly. And then That's in five what I mean. years. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I'm
2: trying to kind of like live more in the moment okay. with my appearance and how I look and how I feel about myself. And... You know, that's hard when your body has changed after pregnancy. Um, but I do feel like I'm in a better place with it. That's great. I mean, look,
0: it's a journey. It as is. As you like to say. It is. A freaking um, toot around the world.
2: But that, looking at those photos was, because they weren't that long ago. Did you feel um, empathy
0: for like two year ago, Dory?
2: Yeah, totally. Um. But also like sadness. Yeah. And also like, why didn't I buy those pants? Yeah. Like they looked good. They looked what was cute. I yeah. So, you know, that was, that was kind of sad, but also like I can be in a better place now. But it's a process.
0: It is. And it's that, that is such an ongoing thing we yes. go through. Yes. Like, because ha-
2: I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to like being in a dressing room like two weeks ago. Yeah. And being like, oh, no, I'm not. oh, I'm not gonna buy this. I thought this looked cute in the mirror, but now I take, I've taken a picture and it actually doesn't look cute.
0: We got, um, we received like a, tr- a fantastic listener voicemail and some listener emails too. But one voicemail that came through that it was like I needed to hear it. And I was listening to the voicemails for work for the podcast. And this listener just called in about body dysmorphia and I'll, I'll play it for you. I think maybe we should play it on a future episode because it. W- they were basically just saying like you're beautiful now and your friends, like you, the people in your life appreciate you for everything that you are and what you look like is truly the least important thing about it was just, I don't, I have to, I can't put it into words, but it was a really meaningful message from the ether. I like Like the listener knew we were thinking about these things. So yeah, I might, it might
2: speak to you as well. Um, so also speaking of, going to bed early, I had a funny thing happen the other night, which is I was supposed to go to a
0: Built to Spill concert. Which they are doing like a 20th anniversary. Yes,
2: of like their iconic 1995 album, Keep It Like a Secret.
0: 1999 album? I think it's 1995. I think it's a 20-year reunion tour. Oh, really? Okay, then it's
2: 1999. I only think this because I was
0: literally just reading about it last night. Oh, okay. um, I'm sorry to be so nitpicky. No,
2: no, I appreciate it. Um, Anyway, Iconic album, love this album, love this band. Were they just playing the whole album? They're playing the whole album. (sighs) Um, I bought these tickets in March. I bought them before Henry was even born. Oh, wow. And then I was looking at the website of the venue, and it said that they were going on at 1030. Why? And I was like, oh, well, that's not happening. (laughs) Like, there's no way. Why go on so late? They are like 50-year-olds. That's exactly what I said. I was like, they're old. Shouldn't they want to be going on at 7? Yes. Like an early, like a senior's dinner time. Yes, exactly. But no, they were going on at 10.30. Oh, my god. So I was like, well, I can't go to that show. So I sold my tickets. Oh, bummer.
0: Yeah. You didn't want to try to, like, push through and rally?
2: I, no. I was just like... Because you know what I had gone to Lizzo
0: Which was another concert That was starting at 10 o'clock And it started
2: at 10 And I couldn't stay to the end Really? I had to pump I was tired Like I was just like I'm not equipped for this right now Which is a bummer
0: Yeah Because it's Lizzo
2: Yeah But I was like I, I need to meet myself where I am
0: Respect
2: Thank you Respect
0: I say So So yeah So that's what's been going on with me well, you know, there, there does come a weird time in our lives where, like, the stuff we used to enjoy doing, while it sounds appealing, physically, it is exhausting. Yes. And that's
2: a weird place to be It at. is very weird. I mean, maybe if they had said they were starting the concert
0: at 6 a.m., I would have gone. <laughs> An 8 a.m. concert? Yeah. Why <laughs> do bands do 8 a.m. concerts? I would actually enjoy that. Yeah. Why must a concert be at night? Great question, Kate. I'm sure Built to Spell listens to this podcast, so <laughs> agree. back to me, Doug.
2: All right. Uh, we're going to take a short break. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Get the support you need with the comfort you deserve and treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market. Save 20% off at honeylove.com slash forever. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com slash forever. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them and please support our show and tell them we send you. The summer vibes are just getting started, so shape your life with Honey Love.
0: You know, the weather's getting warmer. So I, for one, am ready to say... perfect white cotton t-shirt from Mm. quince but it was a little chilly out so i threw on my cashmere hoodie also from quince Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay like they have basically given me a lineup of timeless pieces that i feel like keep me looking i'm gonna toot my own horn effortlessly chic get warm weather ready with quince go to quince.com slash forever thirty five for free shipping on your order and three hundred and sixty five day returns that 's q u i n c e dot com slash forever thirty five to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns Quince.com slash forever thirty five you know Dory we talk to a lot of really fantastic intelligent people on this podcast. very interested in the class Redefining Feminism, which is 14 Lessons from Gloria Steinem. Okay. Now, they dissect issues women face in the U.S. and ways we can play a role in the feminist movement in our everyday lives. Look, I majored in women and gender studies in college. So this is right up my alley. But even if you didn't, Even if you're like, this is the first time I'm hearing those words. I would argue, especially if you didn't. Yes. Get into it with Masterclass because this is the year you can really learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Go from just talking about improving to actually doing the things you've been wanting to do with Masterclass. And it doesn't have to be redefining feminism with Gloria Steinem. It can be gardening in your own garden our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash F35. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash F35. That's masterclass.com slash F35.
2: Our guest today is Ejoma Aluo. Welcome, Ejoma. Hi. Hi. We're so glad to have you. I'm happy to be here. Um, Ijoma Aluo is a Seattle based writer, speaker, and internet yeller. Her work on social issues such as race and gender has been published in The Guardian, The Stranger, Washington Post, Elle Magazine, NBC News, and more. And her New York Times best selling first book, So You Want to Talk About Race, was released in January 2018 with Seal Press. Ijoma was named one of the most influential people in Seattle by Seattle Magazine. One of the 50 Most Influential Women in Seattle by Seattle Met, one of the Roots' 100 Most Influential Americans in 2017 and 2018, and is the recipient of the Feminist Humanist Award 2018 by the American Humanist Association, the Media Justice Award by the Gender Justice League, and the 2018 Aubrey Davis Visionary Leadership Award by the Equal Opportunity Institute. And we are so excited to have her here to talk about her book and about self-care
0: and yeah, um, so let's, let's get into it. Um, can we start, um, Ijoma, just for listeners who aren't familiar with your book, can you and Dori and I have both read it? Can you tell us um, kind of tell us generally about what it is and also kind of what your experience has been since publishing it? Obviously, it's a New York Times bestseller, which is amazing. Um, and I'd love to hear just kind of what it has been like uh, since it came out for you.
1: Sure. Um, the book is called So You Want to Talk About Race. So it's, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a kind of a guidebook on helping with your conversations on issues of race and racism in America. It's really designed to kind of help people get past some of the stumbling blocks that frequently kind of doom conversations on race, um, for your everyday life in work, you know, at home, In your community to really get past those initial conflicts and to really find areas for change. So each chapter kind of tackles issues or questions that people kind of stumble upon regularly when talking about issues of race. The book came out in January of last year, and it's been amazing. It's been really well received. It's been used in colleges all across the country, workshops all across the country. It's been amazing to hear from people about the difference it's ma- made in their life. Um, and it's definitely a book that keeps going. It's been interesting to watch just steady use and, uh, you know, over the last almost two years now and to see it still be relevant and something that people are still recommending to each other and to see it really improving not only relationships, but you know, actual situations that are impacting people of color across the country and even outside of the United States. And we
2: should say that it came out in the paperback edition in September. Um, and you, you wrote a new introduction for the paperback, which I thought was, or a preface um, for the paperback that I thought was interesting, um, where you kind of talk about some of the, I guess, some of the things that you sort of wish you would discussed in the original edition. Um, Can you talk about a little bit about how you came to those realizations, I guess?
1: Certainly. I mean, I think this is something that faces every writer is the things you write stay static, even though writers grow and change. Yeah, And, And often we grow and change because of what we write. And so writing a book on race, my first book, you know, even the process of talking about the book and traveling and hearing from people added to what I felt like, oh I wish I had this, you know, I wish I could have included this. It changed, it added nuance to my own ideas of mm-hmm. what I I had written. And seeing it in use also showed some areas where I, you know, could have done more, um, or better. And I think, you know, any writer always thinks they could do more. And I think any topic we write about we could write multiple books about. But Luckily, when you have a paperback, you get to at least give voice to some of that instead of just carrying it with you. And so it was really nice to have the opportunity to talk about what I would like to include. There were some things I learned that you know my own privilege had kind of stopped me from realizing of just care that I could have taken in some areas of the book, especially dealing with um, issues facing people of color that aren't black. That's my own lived experience, uh, but also things that I just didn't realize needed to be explained as explicitly as they did. And so, you know, seeing it um, and then getting another chance, I'm very grateful that it sold well enough to do, you know, to be able to have a paperback edition so that I could at least include some of those things and talk about it and let people know that I saw it. And, you know, I'm not the last person to write a book about race um, and certainly not the first. And it's always important, I think, for us to recognize what more we can do and what, what could happen next.
0: I want to ask about, um, cultural appropriation because we talk a a ton about self care on this podcast and self care practices. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in self care right now kind of is there is a lot of cultural appropriation going on. And so I was wondering if you could kind of speak about how we can bring, you know, more awareness to the ways in which a lot of self care practices, especially you know, things that white women are doing are co- cultural appropriation.
1: Yeah, certainly. I would say that, you know, part of what I, I I think we should look at is a lot of the idea of self-care as it is popularized lives well within white supremacy, right? The idea to have this luxury time where you can set everything aside is something that many people of color never get to do. And I would say, especially women of color. And so a lot of the practices that are often adopted are not necessarily what we would call self care, but are survival, right? A lot of the practices, other cultures have come up with to get by, to live, um, or some things that are, you know, survival for communities, communal practices, religious practices, very important practices are treated as luxury items, as retreats for white people mm. and it's important to recognize why that's problematic and it's not problematic that anybody would want some luxury in their life it is problematic to think that you can take something that was created for survival or for community or you know to hold and oppressed people together and not take any of the struggle or not do anything to reconcile your part in that oppression. And and that's really where where the issue lies for, I think, a lot of people. It's not that people want to, you know, practice yoga or, you know, go on a sweat or do any of these things. It's the fact that these things are things that are part of a culture that is being told they don't have a right to them themselves. And these things were created to balance, you know, and to fight off some of the oppression that white culture has perpetrated and or have been held on to in spite of oppression of white culture. And so then to have people who don't have to face any of that, who don't need these things for that purpose to say, oh, that's nice. I want some of that without also thinking, what can I do to ease some of the burden that I'm imposing upon this culture? Um, or what can I do to make sure that whatever profits be made from this actually goes to the culture that created and maintains it um, is in itself just more colonialism and white supremacy. And so I think for me, the focus is not necessarily on the act itself, but in the imbalance behind it. Right? The problem is the symptom is cultural appropriation. Right. The power imbalance ends up looking like cultural appropriation. And what I would love people to look at is the power imbalance, to look at where the problem lies, what makes it cultural appropriation and tackle that. So tackle the erasure of other cultures, you know, tackle um, the way in which capitalism cuts communities of color out of any profits from their own creations, you know, tackle the um, exploitation of communities of color, tackle the centering of whiteness in media and pop culture, you know, all of these things that make cultural appropriation, that give it teeth. Those are the things I would like people to focus on. What oftentimes ends up happening instead is something that lies still within white supremacy, which is people want to list, well, what can I do if I can't? you know, if I can't do yoga, if I can't, you know, dress up like a geisha, if I can't do all these things, what can I do? And really what people are asking is, is how can I operate the same way I always have without feeling bad? And instead, if you, you know, people talk about how much they appreciate and love other cultures and they're celebrating other cultures. Well, celebrating other cultures means looking towards sustainment of that culture and showing appreciation for what was given by trying to not be a burden, and to lift any burden that you've placed, and that's really what I want people to start focusing on, yeah, I
2: mean, kind of along those lines, I love all the actionable suggestions you have in your book for how people can fight systemic racism um, you write, you can try you can try to link to the systemic effects of racism whenever you talk about racism. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and explain why this is so important? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that what people of color are suffering from is not the sentiments or lack of love from white people, right? And a lot of times we like to keep discussions on race and racism in the hearts, you know, feelings and love and um, area. And what, what it really is, is systems, systemic oppression. It's how those opinions and feelings can be manipulated by the system or the power that our systems give those feelings. So I can walk down the street and people can think whatever they want of me. And I'm fine with that. What does bother me is that if they decide to act on it and they decide to act on feelings about me because of the color of my skin, our entire system, our employment system, our government, our media will line up behind that action to make it more powerful. And that's really what impacts the lives of people of color. And so when we're talking about issues of race, it's important to recognize, A, that it's oftentimes more effective to get people to see why something is a problem that they're doing if they see how they're playing into something more systemic, but also, Because that's really where the pain lies for people of color. And people of color don't feel heard when all they hear is, oh, I'm sorry if you felt bad when I did this. Because it's not, they're not saying I felt bad. You know, if I get talked over in a meeting by a white man, it's not just that it's rude to be talked over. It's because it plays into the general erasure and subjugation that black women face in workplaces across the country, right? It reinforces that pattern and it's part of A long trail of events to harm and it doesn't exist on its own and so we need to tie to these larger issues a because that's where the real issue is that's what people of color are talking about when they're talking about these situations but also because people need to understand the full weight of what they're doing and they need to also know that it's the systems that they need to attack and that when they fail to look at their actions they are supporting oppressive systems. It's not just I made a mistake or I did what I would do with anyone else. It is I supported a long standing harmful, racist system. So, you know, I, an example I think I use in the book is, you know, if you make a joke about people of color being late in the office, what you're actually doing is not just making a joke. You are upholding a stereotype that makes black people less likely to be hired for jobs. And that because we have racist systems that allow black people to be judged in mass, that, you know, uh, favor negative stereotypes that want to find reasons to hold white employees above employees of color, then what you're saying is no longer just a joke. And the harm that the brunt of that joke feels, which is not just the black person you're talking about, but every black person in an office or black person who would work in that office, um, is larger than just a few words. And that's really why we have these conversations. And I think that's why it's important. I think everyone should know, especially white people should know, the broader impact of what they're doing, because people of color are meant to feel that every single day. We feel the full weight of racist actions. That's why we spend so much time focusing on things like microaggressions, because there's nothing micro about them, because they play into a large system that is crushing people.
0: You know, we have been delving more and more into the topic of our skin as we get older, When we're talking about these systems and just kind of thinking about topics that come up a lot on our show, which are like skincare, makeup, this kind of larger wellness industry, how can we work toward anti-racism when it comes to these things as well?
1: I mean when we're talking about things like skincare and makeup one is just full accessibility right um I'm a black woman who loves skincare loves makeup and I'm a light-skinned black woman and the amount of products that aren't made for me the amount of um the lack of concern and many conversations around skincare, cosmetics, and the beauty industry in general that erase me and definitely erase people who are darker than me, or even who have skin undertones different than mine, or skin needs different than mine, right, um, is shocking for this day and age. Yeah. And looking at, you know, we not only have different skin tones, different hair textures, we have often different skin needs, we're often more sensitive to different ingredients, and also looking at the sourcing and the profit model of many of these industries, right? Some of these ingredients are sourced from areas that harm communities of color. Um, Oftentimes, the businesses themselves practice the erasure of people of color, don't hire people of color, exploit traditional cultural practices for profit while not sharing any of that profit with the communities that they take from, especially things like, you know, the U.S. versions of K-beauty, things like that. Um, and so it's important to look and say, really, you know, am I representing everyone here? Am I open to everyone here? Is this segment something that, you know, does harm to a minority population? Is this something that's useful for everyone? What can I add? What do I need to take away to really make this something that people can really be a part of? And a lot of people don't think about that when it comes to beauty, which to me is is actually shocking because I find communities of color studies have shown time and time again that you know, primarily women of color, but people of all genders of color spend more on beauty and you know what people would call self-care products. Um, than white women
0: do, and yet we're continuously ignored and and underserved. You make a great point in the book too, just about hair and talking about how just conversations about hair is centered on white hair, and you know, you a woman of color might know every you know every product and everything available for white hair, but white women have no idea about what your hair might need or what products might appeal to you and had just that conversation alone is, is happening centered in whiteness.
1: Yes, definitely. And it's something that, you know, it always, you know, I live in a majority white area in Seattle, right? The places even today where I can shop for hair products are very limited, but you'll hear comments even in this day and age, people are shocked what, you know, you put grease in your hair, you do what? Why? Um, A few years ago, people used to laugh at how rarely black women wash their hair. And now, of course, it's all the rage to, you know, co-wash, which is something that we've been doing forever to maintain moisture in our hair you know um but we're continu continuously erased and then when we are seen it's really only in an exploitative way what practices we've been doing for a long time that we've come up with on our own that people come and take and make massive profits off of. There's, you know, satin bonnets are a thing right now, and I was laughing seeing these satin bonnets being sold for $100, which black women have been using forever to keep their hair soft and keep it from breaking at night. And, you know, we buy them for $4 at the beauty supply store. And so it's just... It's interesting to me because I think all of this idea, it also breeds this exotification. Part of the reason why people always want to touch my hair is because they have absolutely no familiar with it. Because it is treated as other. It's not treated as normal. It's not something you would consider writing about in mainstream beauty magazines. It's not something that you would spend a lot of time with in film or television. And so then people treat it as something that's exotic when it's, you know, there are more people of color in this planet than white people. And we have had hair as long as we've existed, you know, (laughs) and there's nothing exotic about our hair and, you know, keeping it, treating it like this mystery and something that you have to explore instead of just respect is another facet of white supremacy.
2: One of the one of the major themes of your book, um it seemed to me, was kind of getting people to well, getting people to understand their privilege um, and also kind of anticipating the responses that people might have when they are embarking on these conversations. um and i I really liked what you had to say about the privilege checklist. Um, and I also just wanted to read this. Quote from your book that really resonated with me um, about checking your privilege, which is we don't want to think that we are harming others we don't want to believe we do not want to believe that we do not deserve everything we have, and we do not want to think of ourselves as ignorant of how our world works. When somebody asks you to check your privilege, they are asking you to pause and consider how the advantages you've had in life are contributing to your opinions and actions and how the lack of disadvantages in certain areas is keeping you from fully understanding the struggles others are facing and may in fact be contributing to those struggles. Um, And I was just hoping you could speak to that a little bit. um, If people are kind of wanting to have these conversations with people in their lives, um, how they can, I guess, get people to check their privilege.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say if you want people to check their privilege, first start with checking your own. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think everybody can do, right? This is something that I have to do regularly. Mm-hmm. Our privilege is not static. Um, it, it differs not only, you know, year by year as our situation changes, but it differs depending on what room we're in, mm-hmm. you know. And being aware is just your way of trying to reduce the risk of doing harm to others. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to get comfortable with that yourself and to come to conversations on privilege with the knowledge that you yourself have privilege that you are not aware of. Privilege that is stopping you from fully living your values and helping to the extent that you want to. And you know it is causing you to do harm. And we all have to know that, that we, no matter how much time we spend working on this, we have some unchecked privilege out there that is causing us to do harm to others. Mm-hmm. Because when we tell other people to check their privilege, we have to know that we are one heartbeat away from someone telling us to check mm-hmm. ours. And we have to have that kind of generosity in mind when we talk about it. Um But what I would say is, you know, trying to, when you're trying to get someone to I think sometimes it helps to say why. Mm. And to say, you know, I need you to understand. You're not, you know, you're not seeing this. There is a lived experience that you're not understanding here. Your lived experience, regardless of your intentions, is stopping you from seeing something, a lived experience that's different from your own. It's stopping you from understanding an oppression that you haven't faced. And you know, it is hard to get people to pause and take time with that, But I find that one of the most powerful things we can do is just to model it ourselves. Mm. I try to always be as public as possible when I discover I've done something that does harm. And I try to be as accountable as possible. And I do that because A, it's the right thing to do. Because people I've harmed deserve to know that, you know, I see what I've done. And that I am holding myself responsible. But also because other people need to see that you won't die. You know? Mm, (laughs) That it won't kill you. And I find oftentimes just bringing my own, you know, awareness into the room and my own struggle into the room and letting people know that I'm working on it means that people are more likely to hear me when I say the same thing to them. But if they never hear me admit that I've, been wrong or that i've done harm or that you know my privilege had stopped me from fully seeing a situation If they never see me reflect or ask questions or say i don't know then you know they're going to feel shamed in a way that is unnecessary when i say that they need to stop and reflect and see Uh, i'm not anti-shame but There's something very dishonest about the way in which people often pretend that they've never been wrong when they ask other people to do their work. Like they've never had to do that work themselves. And we all have our work to do. And I think that instead of you know, trying to pretend like we've always been perfect or to use the fact that everyone messes up as an excuse to not do anything, we should instead all be trying to set examples of, You know, open quests for the harm we've done and open growth and welcome growth and what true accountability looks like. We should be striving to show that, you know, striving to practice that. So that way when we need, we need that from others, they will feel safer giving it to us. And, you know, even if they don't act, we know it becomes more obvious that they need to. (laughs) And, You know, other people who are witnessing that situation know they have a choice, that they could be acting out of the care they say they have and seeking to do less harm, or they could be closing around their privilege and refusing to. And you can really only see those two choices when you show what it looks like to make those choices.
2: Why do you think these conversations make people so defensive?
1: I'm, because we're good people. The only people I think who never get defensive about these conversations are scary people mm. who don't actually feel bad, right? <laughs> right yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I don't want to meet the person who just shrugs. It's like cool when you tell them <laughs> they've done harm, you know? Yeah. Um, we are good people, however that's defined. Who want to do good? We want to help instead of hurt, and. To be told that you've hurt someone you care about is a really painful thing. And the first thing you want to do is to make it not true. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because no matter what that's, even if you get for, you know, start doing the work to fix it, you still have to live with the fact you've done harm. You can't erase that harm if you let it hit you. And so it's a natural instinct for people who care to first go, wait, 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 wait. Maybe it's not true. <laughs> you know, Maybe it's not me. Maybe I'm still just as good and kind as I, as I thought I was. Maybe I haven't done harm. Maybe I haven't hurt someone I care about. And it's important um to pause and realize that's a natural reaction, but it's not helpful, right? Mm-hmm. And that even the denial itself can compound harm. And that if you really are the person you think you are, all that we are is what we strive to be, right? It's not. The image you carry of yourself it's the work you do and so that means that when someone gives you an opportunity to show that you're not doing the work in a certain area that you need to pause and recognize it as an opportunity because no matter how we see ourselves the only true measure of our quote-unquote goodness is the impact we have on the lives of others and once you know that there's a chance you've been doing something that does harm There is no amount, you can deny it, you can refuse to see it, but it's still happening. And we have to learn how to process all of those natural reactions as quickly as possible so we can get past that and get to the work and get to the listening and the figuring out what you need to do to make it right or to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so I don't think we reach a point where it ever stops hurting to find out you've harmed someone. I don't want to be a person who doesn't have that twinge, who wishes it wasn't true when I find out I've hurt someone. Mm. Uh, Because when I do, that means I don't care. But, I've learned how to quickly absorb that blow, recognize it's still not about me, and that I'm being given an opportunity to do better, and move past the part that's not useful to the person I've harmed, and get to the part that is, which is Hearing, listening, and figuring out what you need to do to fix it.
2: So, I guess for better and for worse, a lot of these conversations take place on social media, um, particularly on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and you talk in your book about tone policing. And I was just hoping you could discuss kind of what is it, first of all, and why does it happen so much? Um, I think, especially on Facebook.
1: Yeah, I mean, tone policing happens everywhere. And I will say, like, even right now we can see this in the election, right? The way mm-hmm. in which people of color are really being policed for their language or being told they're too aggressive if they ask tough questions. Um, it's really, it's couched in white supremacy. And it's the idea that we have to curry favor with whiteness in order to be heard, and in order to get our rights. and. That's nothing but more white supremacy, and part of it is comes from times when things were much worse, right? When the cost of not begging, of not being polite, of not trying to find a way to sneak things in was very violent. But it is also just the way in which white supremacy maintains itself. It's important to recognize that when telling people who've been harmed, who are actively being harmed, that you will only hear about the harm done is, if it's said to you politely, if you're comfortable, you know, if you feel safe, um is a way of saying, I have the right to judge whether or not you deserve to be hurt. Mm. I have the right to deem whether or not your complaints are valid because I am above you. And whether or not people want to admit that's what they think, it is. Because the truth is is that none of us have the right to say that we get to judge someone's basic humanity. That we get to decide whether or not someone gets to be heard. Whether or not they get to feel safe and secure and you, their humanity gets to be recognized. Because we are all human beings. We are not placed above each other. and. To say that you're not going to hear about these fundamental rights unless someone is sweet and kind, unless you like them, unless you approve of their approach means that you think you're in a position to approve. Mm. And th- it's fundamentally disempowering. It's a way of ensuring that white supremacy stays within our movements anytime that those requirements are enforced. And it needs to be called out because it's incredibly dangerous, because there will always be a time and a place where things are worth being angry about, where Mm -hmm. things are worth shouting about, where the immediate benefits to whiteness won't be seen for deconstructing parts of white supremacy. And we need to recognize that we still go forward anyways, because it's the right thing to do, because we believe in justice, and because the humanity of people of color is non-negotiable. And any time that we say it is negotiable, any time we say it needs approval, we undermine that. And that's why it, it is is—it is an issue that's beyond how it deflects, how it slows. It is inherently dangerous to the fight against oppression.
0: Ejom, I want to ask you, because you mentioned makeup earlier and your love of makeup, and I follow you on Instagram, and I noticed you are organizing your makeup and I'm just curious if you could speak to what makeup means to you personally as a practice of self-care and self-love, what the reception has been when you talk about it online and what it kind of, how it kind of plays out in your day-to-day and and your self-expression.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's interesting for me, I think, I have always loved makeup, even, you know, when I was a little kid. I used to, like, sneak a little makeup kit to school to put on at recess even when I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. And my mom, you know, when we were at home, would always let me, you know, dress up and, you know, do whatever I wanted. And I've always loved art. And what was just something I always loved turned into I guess, kind of what we would call self-care as my work intensified. You know, I do a lot of hard, sometimes brutal work um, investigating, you know, some of the, the real horrors of racism and white supremacy in America. And taking some time to just focus on myself and celebrating myself, celebrating features that white America doesn't necessarily think are beautiful, um, creating you know, owning my own face and saying, you know, it gets to be what I want it to be. Um and as a black woman, taking time for myself, which I think a lot of times people think black women don't have a right to. We're supposed to always be working in service of others, is something that kind of just keeps me going. And I really enjoy it. It's definitely a part a ritual um, that kind of keeps me connected to myself. And it's interesting because I share it because it's something I create and I'm proud of it. I like it a lot. Um, you know, it's t- something I put time and effort into. And I was not expecting it to be something that would really pick up with people. But I would say, you know, almost as many people talk to me about how much they love my makeup as they talk to me about how much they love my writing. And there's something that people, I think that for, especially for many women are told that they're not supposed to take time for themselves, that there's something wrong with spending time celebrating themselves, especially, ce- you know, celebrating their face and that you have to have a certain face that, or that you have to lack, you know, Intellect, in order for that to be something you want to do, that you can't be a serious person, that you can't care about women's rights, that you can't care about any serious issues, if you also care about putting makeup on. And people talk to me about what it means to see that and how shocking it is to get that regular reminder, which to me was just, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was surprising, but it makes sense. And there's Pressure. Sometimes people reply to me and say, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to see your makeup. And I'm like, cool, but you don't pay my bills. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're not paying for the makeup or the words. Um, yeah, So you don't really have a say here. And you know, I'm a free black woman. I get to do what I want. Um, And other, but mostly it's people who just really appreciate seeing that they know I do it for myself because they know most of the time no one ever sees me in public because I'm a total hermit I'm, I live the writer life where you know I barely get out of pajamas I'm working all day and all night but I take the time to put on a full face of makeup because I like it because it's fun and I don't know people like to see a regular dose of a black woman doing something for her just for her own enjoyment every single. Day you know almost every single day and I think it gives people inspiration um a sense of freedom that whatever their thing is because not everyone likes makeup I've there's plenty of um you know I have a friend who's this you know bearded white dude who I don't think has ever worn makeup a day in his life and anytime I do sometimes I'll do little videos while I'm putting makeup on talking about politics while i'm putting makeup on and he logs on every time and he's like i just love seeing someone who's known for doing something doing something completely different because it's what they want to do and it just makes me happy it lets me know that sort of freedom exists and i think that whatever we can do to you know whatever your thing is that you love to do just because you love to do it you know i think that you should and you should be proud of it And you should make excuses up for it. And so this is my thing.
0: Well, I love, I love, I love watching it on Instagram. I will tell you. Um, Ijama, Ijama, it's been so nice to have you on the podcast. Um, Your book is available anywhere and everywhere. So you want to talk about race. Um, But where else can our listeners find you online? Uh, You know, primarily social media.
1: You can, everything's under my name. You want to find me on Twitter, It's under Ijeoma Oluo. You want to find me on Facebook? Ijeoma Oluo. You want to see my makeup on Instagram? It's all Ijeoma Oluo. So um, just Google my name. I figure it's a a fun name to learn. And once you've learned it, you shouldn't have to learn anymore. And (laughs) you can find me everywhere there. And are you working on a second book? I am. Yeah. So I'm working on a book that's kind of a history of uh, white male identity in America. And hopefully then it will be my last book I write about whiteness for a very long
0: time. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for
1: having me. Have a great day. You You too. Bye.
2: Her book was so thought provoking. Like talk about changing the narrative.
0: Yes. Like and it I, changed
2: my narrative about so many things.
0: And I have to tell you, listeners, if you haven't read it yet, it is a really engaging, insightful read. I yep. highly, highly recommend Same. it. Same. And last night I was actually talking about cultural appropriation with some friends uh, who are also white women. And I felt like I felt so much more informed after reading her book. It, it, it's just, it's very useful in changing my thinking on so many things. So. Same. And I was so thrilled we got to have her on the pod. So how is Google Tasks? Well, you know, I was just updating it before you got here. Oh, well, look at that. I really like it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Good. I'm still consistently using it and checking things off with it. So I'm going to stick with it. That's awesome. And maybe I'll recommend it to you if you want a new task app. So you use their app? On my phone and then on my computer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Maybe this is what I've been looking for. Yeah. And I will tell you, I mean, we'll talk about this at another time, but I also went through and made my phone less desirably usable. Mm. So I like took my main page is basically empty, but Google tasks is one of the things that oh, has remained. Cool. how so, cool? so yeah. And so this week mm-hmm. I'm just going to be all about that 5am wake up life. I'm going to just kind of start waking up earlier. I'm not going to go like full hog, You know, I got to kind of keep pushing my wake up time back and pushing my bedtime earlier, but I'm going to kind of try to dedicate some time to exploring this early rising. That's where I'm at. That's so cool. All right. How was your TV watching?
2: So I watched another episode of The Good Place. Yay! (laughs) Um, Matt and I watched an episode of The Great British Bake Off.
0: Relaxing. The Great British
2: Baking Show, as it is called here in the United States. Um, I did not get back into anything else, but... I feel something. okay about it. Um, and this week, I want to either go to yoga or do yoga at home. Mm. I've not done yoga in months. Okay. And I miss it.
0: Well, I welcome you back. Well, thank you. Uh, yoga with Adrian.
2: Yeah, I think I might, I might you do You have them. a mat at
0: home, right? I do. There's not, there's not many places to really do it. I'm thinking about your house, <laughs> and I am agreeing.
2: But maybe I can figure something out. I feel like maybe in the office. Just a
0: 20 minute, 20 minute sesh. Yeah. Ooh, okay. So,
2: we'll see. I'll, I'll report back. All right. I like that
0: uh, intention for Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Kate. Well, this brings us to the end of yet another show. Happy to be here.
0: Show number 99. Oh, my goodness. I think. I think show number 99. Wow. No, maybe not. Wow. I'm gonna take that back. Uh, we have a voicemail at seven eight one five nine one zero three nine zero. You can email us at forever thirty five podcast at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash group slash forever thirty-five with the password serums. Try that again. You said slash, forever35. slash forever thirty five. It's Why do I never podcasts? do this? Right? <laughs> We have a Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups slash forever35podcast, where the password is serums.
2: And if you like this show, please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend
0: and mention us on social media. We appreciate all of those things. And of course, all the products we mention are always on our website, forever35podcast.com. Go get yourself a deep waiver. And you can also follow us on Instagram at forever35podcast and on Twitter at forever35pod. And Forever 35 is hosted and produced by me, Dori
2: Freer, and Kate Spencer and produced and edited by Sammy Junio.
0: And we should mention... Our dear assistant Lane Hammer is no longer with us. Yes, Lane has left us. Lane got a uh, really exciting a really cool gig. new job. Yes. Um, but we really miss Lane. We do. And she was a huge asset to the pod. She was. So, if you've been wondering where Lane is, that's where. That's where she is. Yeah. Okay, hope she's listening. Bye. Bye.